Hello from Austin, and welcome to Episode 9 of the National Security Law Podcast, brought to you by the Strauss Center for International Security and Law at the University of Texas. I'm Bobby Chesney. And I'm Steve Lodick. Bobby, is this the Bracket Buster edition of the podcast? Oh, I really was hoping you weren't going to lead with that. I, I, I will <laughs> confess, for anyone who wasn't listening previously, I had Arizona going all the way and actually had them playing Louisville in the final. Not How looking about, good. Yeah, how's yours looking? Well, you know, I did have Villanova in the championship game, but my ultimate national champion, the UCLA Bruins, still alive. Um, we're recording this, obviously, around 9 a.m. on Friday in Austin. Maybe 12 hours from now, that won't still be true, but, <laughs> you know, I'm holding on hope for as long as I can. You know, I was so proud of myself. I had I had Wisconsin beating Villanova, and so I thought I was golden, but obviously, that's, uh, that's why they call it March Madness. I, is that why they call it March Madness? That's exactly why. Okay. Um, I thought March Madness was, you know, Tim Tebow getting assigned to Class A. But I thought March Madness had more to do with Russia investigations. <laughs> and, uh, well, I guess, so, so that brings us to the real subtitle of this episode, right? Which is Devin Nunes's No Good, Really Bad, Horrible, Long, Strange, Bizarre Week. Yeah, so uh, Chairman Nunes and... and, and Listeners, we did look up the Congressional Quarterly Pronunciation Guide to make sure, and it is Nunes. Or, uh, or, or if you're in more of a Seinfeld mode, Nunes! Oh, nice. Uh, <laughs> that's an image. Uh, Chairman Nunes made a lot of news the other day. Steve, why don't, before news. we get into an analysis of the legal issues that he's gesturing towards and that his own activities raise, so there's two levels to it, let's talk a little bit for those who are not following it closely what exactly happened? Sure. I mean, so this all, Bobby, of course, springs from that uh, evergreen tweet that Donald Trump sent a couple weeks back on a Saturday morning about how he was, he had just found out that he'd been surveilled by, uh, sorry, wiretapped was the exact word in the tweet, right? McCarthyism, he said. By, McCarthyism. by, by Obama, as if Obama was sitting in the van with the headphones on, wiretapping him. Exactly. So, you know, one of the, so, so what's now happened is Devin Nunes, who we should say is the chair of the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, or HIPSI, HIPSI. Um, right, um, basically has been leading um, at least some kind of investigation into that claim and into whether, in fact, um, that tweet is borne out by facts. Right. In the context, of course, as we all heard and, and saw at great length in the, the testimony with FBI Director Jim Comey on Monday, there is uh, sort of a complete... That was Monday? That was, yeah, can you believe that? <laughs> Uh, this is a there are dueling narratives out there. So one narrative is is the uh, question of what were the ties between Russia and the Trump campaign, and then as a sort of would be counter narrative, right. there's there's an attempt to shift the story, sort of put the prosecution on trial, if you will, and and ask, wait, wh why is all this information leaking out? And indeed, was why there were perhaps why were you even looking for it in the first place? Right, and, and, and how much and was there wrongdoing? Was any of it a political witch hunt or something like that? So that's the and, and from a litigator's perspective, this is a familiar sort of strategic back and forth, right? You have a you have an affirmative case being made, and one type of defense is a good offense, right? So they're trying to get a good offense going and shift the story in a certain way, and in the in the newness statement that we're about to discuss uh, had a lot of elements of, of trying to go on the offensive. Yeah, and, and I guess, Bobby, just to go back to our conversation from last week about the Intelligence Committee versus, let's say, the Armed Services Committee, leaving aside the merits of what he said, which we're about to dive into, not clear to me that it's the job of the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee to be the sort of front runner in the defend Donald Trump 
case here, but I guess that's, you know, my sensibilities being a bit offended. Well, so th there's there's uh, one of the layers we need to talk about is the, the role of, it, it's under the general heading of legislative oversight of the intelligence community, and, and what is the efficacy, uh, you know, this is sort of a... a efficacy well, and credibility. Efficacy and credibility, which are two different things. Do, does it really perform a decent or at least halfway sufficient... Which is what we thought about last week. Uh, ...oversight function, and, and then quite apart from that, uh, does, is it perceived as such? And, and as we all know, perception is important too. Um, indeed. All right. So why don't we? Do, so Monday, Bobby, there was a hearing right before Hipsy, where Director Comey, Admiral Rogers, who's the director of the National Security Agency, a couple other folks testified, um, somewhat obtusely, I think I might say, about exactly what is known and what they could say on the record? Yeah, I mean, obtusely, it all, this sounds a little pejorative almost. Oh, I didn't mean it yeah, that way. Yeah, I know sorry. you didn't. I, know. I, I just I, wanted um, to clarify. How about, how about to sort of vaguely? Well, I, I, how about this? They, they testified in a way that was pretty limited because there are these ongoing uh, count. We're told one of the things they did say, the Justice Department gave the director of the FBI permission to disclose publicly mm -hmm. that there is an ongoing uh, counterintelligence investigation. And that, because, that, is, that has started in July. Yes, and it's been going on for some time and is, and is, is still underway. And, of course, in the context of an ongoing investigation, you're very limited in publicly what you can say. But so it seems to me that part of what may have happened this week, Bobby, is a backlash. Backlash may be too strong, but that part of what Nunes was doing was responding to yeah. the media narrative that no, came out yeah. of Monday's hearing. No question. Um, look, during that hearing, it was clear that that counter-narrative I was talking about a moment ago was very much on the surface of a lot of the members, the Republican members' questions of the witnesses, including questions that really focus on, yeah, but let's talk about the leaks to the public that have revealed that this counterintelligence Right, and let's talk about the nature of the investigation. Exactly. So there's a lot of that back and forth. And so part of the context for Chairman Nunes coming out publicly is, you know, sort of counteracting that. Don't forget, too, that that morning, that same morning, uh, the AP, Monday. I believe, uh, no, no, the morning of Nunes. Oh, uh, Wednesday. Um, We're up Wednesday. to Wednesday. So Wednesday morning, I believe, there was an AP story about new allegations against Paul Manafort, right. former campaign manager. Um, and so it was, it was against the backdrop of a lot of Russia slash Trump narrative that morning that then this story comes out. And, and I just want one last point on that before we get to Wednesday. I, I actually thought probably the most interesting moment in Monday's hearing involved Manafort. Um, because there's a point at which Comey is asked a question, and forgive me, I don't remember by whom, um, about Manafort's foreign agent registration, um, right? And now this is a very technical point in government, you know, high-level government legal, legal circles, um, but it's actually a pretty big deal if you are being paid by a foreign government or foreign government subsidiaries to disclose that information, right? Absolutely. And to, to release it, not publicly necessarily, but to the relevant government entities. Yeah, no, no. Failure to disclose acting as a registered foreign agent. And this is Mike Flynn's problem. Indeed. Well, it's one of his two big legal problems. One is that, the other one is whether he has a problem with his statements to the FBI during their himself. investigation. But, but so in Flynn's case, right, the story about the Turkey payment actually came out just inside what I thought was the window for disclosing a foreign agent issues. In Manafort's, oh, is that right? I that's what I that. thought. In Manafort's context, okay. Comey actually gave the classic government lawyer, I can't speak to that because it's a matter under investigation. Yeah, so that's that's not a good sign for him. For Manafort. Um, no and, doubt. and if Manafort, you know, does end up under some kind of indictment, there's always the specter of whether that's the end of that story or the beginning of it. Right, yeah, I think a lot of observers are wondering if and when, look, I think that people assume that insofar as criminal charges emerge out of any foreign ties to anyone involved in any campaign, 
it'll it'll start with small people, and then the question becomes: Will people who are lower down the chain then begin cooperating with prosecutors and building cases upwards in that traditional? And, and let me just say, and and the efforts of the administration to the contrary notwithstanding, I mean, Manafort was not very low on the chain in the campaign. He was right. the campaign right. manager. Right. Um, all right. Anyway, so now we get to Wednesday, and Chairman Nunes, um, and he makes a couple of Bobby very interesting statements. Um, one of the things I found especially interesting is where he made them, right? So um, Nunes goes to the White House, um, he says, to brief the president. Um, and either on his way in or on his way out, I don't exactly recall. It was before he briefed. So on his way yes. in, he stops on Pebble Beach and does a little press briefing. Um, does that seem, just before we get to even what he said, I mean, the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, on his way to brief the president on a matter of investigation before the committee, stops before the press to tell him what's going on. Yeah, that obviously. Now, I, here I think we're not really talking about. Well, it's, here's a question: Is this a legal issue or is this a policy issue? First, policy is it a good policy for the chairman of HIPC so, so to it's be not, talking about? To this? me, it's not a legal issue until he opens his mouth. Okay, right. So, legally speaking, he can give press conferences he wants to. Is it bad form? Certainly. Critically, he began talking publicly about what he learned before he shared that with at least the ranking member, Adam Schiff, right. and indeed with the rest of the committee. So. Uh, the chairman obviously shouldn't be doing that, and and he did subsequently apologize, which is a way, whether that well, was heartfelt or not, it was an acknowledgement that well that wasn't the right thing to have done. So I think it's is it Maggie Haberman is the New York Times reporter. Mm -hmm. I think I think she had a really interesting tweet about where Nunes's apology ranks on the apology scale. Oh, good, I didn't see that. Uh, but, but it was somewhere between you know I'm sorry that you feel this way yeah. and sorry not sorry on sorry, the apology scale. Right, but the very fact that something had he felt obliged to do right. something is is a reminder that. This isn't just some, uh, you know, possible debatable point. The chairman who's going to talk about information he's learned in his capacity as chairman of HIPSI should not be then talking publicly first to the public about this and then later to the committee members. That's right. And, and, and indeed, I mean, I think there's no question that, that before anything else happened, that of itself was a huge faux pas. That was a faux pas, yeah. right. So now the content of what he said. <laughs> first, let's describe what he said, and then let's talk about the implications both as to the underlying investigation and any troubles he may have made for himself. So Bobby, the first thing is he talks about incidental collection. What is that? Okay, incidental collection. First of all, the, the context of course here is we're, we're talking about revelations that relate to the underlying Russia slash campaign investigation. It, incidental collection is a term that's used when the uh, intelligence community is conducting foreign intelligence collection and lawfully targeting um, a, a foreign uh, person or agent or entity, and U.S. person information is incidentally captured in the call. So, for example, if you, know, you can assume that a given country's foreign, a given country's ambassador right. is, is a proper target of a FISA Title I. Right. Let's say we have a wiretap on, on Kislyak's phone. Right, right. So, and so we're going to capture the contents of all his calls. Uh, and so he calls up Domino's Pizza and places an order, and there's some American on that line talking to him. Incidentally, it will be collected. Oh, see, I thought that was still direct. I thought incidental was if someone else uses his phone, right? I thought that was the analogy. No, so in this context, we're talking about communications where U.S. persons weren't meant to be collected on that, that they weren't the target, but they turn up there. And, and it's highly foreseeable in many of these cases, there's going to be some of this. And that's okay. It's unavoidable. Although I'm not sure about Domino's. I don't know that Domino's is, is Domino's highly is, foreseeable. I, I agree. Uh, you know, if, if, if only they had Mr. Gaddy's. There we go. Or Austin Pizza, some good local Austin Home chain. slice. 
Ooh, now you're talking. So um, the question is, uh, what happens in, the, in those cases? This is where minimization rules matter. And minimization rules, uh, that refers in, in sort of a broad sense to the set of uh, procedures that are used to make sure that when U.S. persons incidentally collected, information is incidentally collected, um, it's either gotten rid of or it's minimized in how it's then distributed outwards. So, Bobby, everything I know about criminal procedure, I learned from The Wire, right? Um, <laughs> and on The Wire, when they're listening to the conversation, there's a box they click, right? They're like, not relevant. Is that basically what minimization is? So, that's part of it. So, there, there are stages. There's a question of, um, should you get rid of the communication altogether? That is, delete file. Should you keep it, but mask the name of the U.S. person who's involved such that you're keeping their privacy protected to that extent? You Let's say it's Mike Flynn. You take out Mike Flynn, and it's USP1. And then if the, if the maybe identity, if the identity gets, person is not relevant to the context. Okay, so that's the critical thing. There, here, And this gets right to the heart of something that I think rather upset me in looking at the chairman's comment. Um, he said, first of all, as I understand it, and correct me if I have this wrong, but he seemed to say that the collection that he had learned about, the collection itself was lawful. And he talked about there being warrants, and we'll come back to that in a moment. That could be a reference to there being FISA Title I orders. It could be a reference to, to the collection having happened under uh, FISA Section 702 authority. Doesn't really matter. He, he seems to be saying, look, the, the, the targeting was appropriate and lawful, but there was incidental collection of one or more Trump campaign members. And, and I will note that his language at first seemed to suggest maybe even Trump himself, but then he kind of walked it back. Mm -hmm. And we have n still not had anyone claim that Trump himself was captured. So I think what we're talking about here much more likely is members of the people associated with the campaign. You know, it could be Flynn, could be Manafort, could be any number of people. Whose, whose communications were incidentally collected. Because they were in communication with someone else who was probably a foreign person who was the proper lawful target of a court-approved collection order. All right, so, so let me jump over a second, right? So yesterday, Fox was running the cry on just about all day. Um, Trump's surveillance confirmed. Given what Chairman Nunes said, um, I think that Cryon is is just about completely false, but maybe we should we should elaborate a bit. Well, this is you know I I do believe I saw some wise person tweet that it kind of depends <laughs> on what you mean by surveillance and what you mean by Trump. If by no, Trump, no, so, so Trump that was Beck Ingber. I said I said it depends on what you mean by surveillance and confirmed. And Beck wrote back and said, and also what you mean by Trump. Uh, there you, well, yeah, exactly. So in combination, you guys made a bunch of really important points. <laughs> hey, Beck, hope you're listening. So um, by Trump, that can be a reference in that context to Trump campaign officials. Mm -hmm. I think that if at any point Trump himself recorded, uh, I think if Nunes knew that, I think he would have said so. Uh, so we're probably talking about campaign officials. And then what do you really mean by surveillance? Do you just mean there was incidental collection? To that extent, it's true. But as framed in that in that In the original tweet, right? I mean, the original tweet was, right, right. I, right, I was wiretapped by President Obama. Right. No, that clearly, right? Clearly, False. Cl clearly a distortion or, or a spin that, ha that suggests to people who aren't down in the weeds yeah. something nefarious. That, is, that, is, that is nefarious and right. isn't supported by anything we've yet seen. Right. So now he then goes on, and, and I thought this was subtle, clever, and it really bothered me. Mm -hmm. He said, you know, why were the names of these? He, he revealed that the name, that there were intelligence products circulated that, unmasked. Uh, that had the unmasked yep. U.S. person name. So there was incidental collection of these names, 
and the real people's names then went out widely, apparently. Within the intelligence community. Within the intelligence community. So, so let's mark that point, listeners, right? He revealed publicly the unmasking, because we're going to come back to that. Yeah, so we'll come, although he didn't say who they were, and he wasn't that specific, which is also critical to yeah. that point. Now, on this issue, he, he said, this raises the question, and I'm paraphrasing here, uh, why did this happen? And it immediately touched into the, the counter-narrative that maybe the IC was intentionally trying to, you know, witch hunt Trump campaign members. And the implication was that somehow it's a violation of law or policy for an unmasked U.S. person named to circulate. That's the part that bothers me. Well, because it's completely false. Well, it, it depends. We have to know facts, but it's... No, I mean, I mean categorically. Oh, yeah, as a categorical implication. There's a categorical implication that when U.S. person information is collected, you have to mask, if not delete. That That's not the case. I mean, we talked about an example a couple of weeks ago, right, where if Mike Flynn is the U.S. person, it's actually deeply relevant. It, it's all about the relevance. If the U.S. person's identity is relevant to understanding the foreign intelligence value of the information that was being collected for foreign intelligence purposes, then of course you unmask. And there are examples. There's a, there's a terrific post on Lawfare by David Chris, who knows what he's talking about Indeed. on this, and it, like much else. David Chris, who among other things, everybody, was the um, assistant attorney general in charge of the National Security Division for a time under President Obama. And the, and the author of, of the, the, by far the leading treatise yep. on this matter, yep. and, and by anyone's measure, you know, the most knowledgeable person out there on, on the ins and outs of FISA, um, the legislative history, the text, the rules, all of it makes clear. This, let me, let me just be blunt. There isn't any room for debate on this. It's okay and lawful and consistent with policy as long as there's real relevance. That's right. Now, that's the question. Could it be that, in fact, U.S. person names were circulated as to conversations where their identity is not relevant and significant for understanding the foreign intelligence value of this intercept? So, right. Maybe. So, for Maybe, example, but, right. so but for the context suggests otherwise. So, for example, right? I mean, let's imagine a situation where the U.S. person is a clerk in a store in Trump Tower. Right, hard to see the national security no, for yeah. intelligence relevance to that person's name, right? But if it's Paul Manafort, if it's Michael Flynn, yeah, they're talking about they're talking about you know. So hey, if we're elected, right. here's what we're going to do. Right. That would be hugely relevant, right? So it seems like Nunes is actually not just telling an inaccurate version of the story, but doing so in a way that covers up the very real possibility that this was all perfectly legal. And indeed, perhaps quite significant. So I wouldn't say he's telling an inaccurate. We don't know if he's telling an inaccurate version. How about a story that is easy to misunderstand? He's telling a story that's easy to misunderstand, and he's suggesting, and, and he may not. I don't know if he understands this point or not. He <laughs> he may think. Well, I'm, I'm quite serious. I think yeah. he, it's possible he may not understand that it's perfectly appropriate for the U.S. person name to be unmasked if it's relevant for the foreign intelligence value of the information. So it's, it's certainly possible, Bobby. I'll just go on record. But, but it's reckless, and of course the chairman should know. I, mean, this, to know I mean, come on, this is the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee. Right. I mean, it is his job. Yeah. Okay, anyway. Uh, I, I, you're not going to get an argument out of me on that one. All right, so that's the substance of what he did. Um, so I tweeted Bobby not long after um, he gave the statement um, that Nunez had, had quite possibly just committed a felony live on national television. Yeah, so why do you think that? So um, there's a statute that we've talked about before, right? It's part of the Espionage Act. It's 18 U.S.C. Section 793D. Um, and that statute makes it a crime for individuals who lawfully have access to, you know, certain national security information um, to do something that discloses that information to someone not legally entitled to receive it. That's the language of the statute. So, okay. so now we have that here. Well, that's the question. So the statutory phrase, Bobby, is information related to the national defense. 
Um, and I guess the question that I just, you know, am not sure of the answer, but think it's actually pretty close, is whether the existence of this surveillance um, is information related to national defense, whether the mechanics of this surveillance that Nunes disclosed is information related to national defense, whether the unmasking of U.S. persons is information related to the national defense. Um, now, I suspect that many listeners, you know, all seven of them, um, might think that this is a, you know, capacious way to read that statute. Bobby, the statute is read capaciously in lots of other contexts like leak prosecutions. And so I'm not, you know, if we're going to read it capaciously in that context, shouldn't it also be capacious here? So there's a mens rea element here that the, the information the possessor has to, quote, have has reason to believe could be used to the injury of the United States to the advantage of any foreign nation. Mm-hmm. At the level of generality he was speaking at, it's very hard for me to see how that that could be met here. So you don't think that 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 Nunes' disclosure actually could be sort of perceived as helping in some regard Russia? The information he disclosed, what the, let's be real precise about the yeah. classified information that was in, implicated in yeah. what he's talking about. Um, he certainly, I think, said at one point there were Warrants. Five, he said warrants, of course. Plural. Warrants, you know, just technical point, listeners, FISA orders, not warrants. They're FISA orders, or maybe they're even 702 directives. But anyways, um, that's neither here nor there. So he disclosed that the FISA court, or at least he implied the FISA court, implied. had probably issued a, some, one or more Title I uh, orders. Uh, Bobby, means, but, but Bobby, he, Bobby means Title I of FISA, which is the original, original surveillance kind of authority. Cla- classic FISA. The thing that looks the most like a warrant. Yeah, exactly. And it's understandable people use that language. That's where you have probable cause to believe your target's a foreign power or an agent of a foreign power and the facility you're going to listen to right. or capture communications. Now, Bobby, let me, let me stop right there. Um, if, if, if all Nunes had disclosed was the existence, the previously unconfirmed existence of Title I FISA authorizations to go after individuals suspected of being agents of, let's just say, Russia. Right, but he didn't say that, right? So he just said, in fact, one of the strange and interesting things he said was, this wasn't about Russia, he said. I know. Which is fascinating, but it's totally unspecific, and it adds to the generality of it. Let's be clear, he never said, I understand from what I've been told, there there was a FISA order or warrant uh, as to the Russian ambassador. He didn't name any names. In fact, he distanced it all from, from Russia. I think he kept Funny it, how that worked. I think he kept it all at a level of ambiguity that makes it very hard to say that this is this is a serious case for criminal liability. Well, listen, he's, I mean, let me say, he's never going to be prosecuted. Oh, yeah, as a practical matter, clearly not. Um, he also, I mean, we talked a bit about how whether he might be entitled to a defense under Article One speech or debate clause, right? Yeah, Which, so let's talk about how does that work. Well, just to frame that a little bit yeah. more, um, Step one, as a practical matter, he's not going to be prosecuted. This is like our Logan Act discussion That's a few right. episodes back. Step two, uh, in in theory, is there liability? You think maybe so? I think it, what he said was far too general. How about this? But, How about this? But is there in general, I don't like the idea of the House Intelligence Committee even coming that close to the line of 793G. Well, I certainly agree with that. That's partly why I don't think the chairman should be out there you know, making statements to the and, public about things he... he and by the way, it's totally unclear. What information source was he drawing on here? Was this... Was this something that FBI or other officials formally briefed him on? Right. It, did somebody leak to him and then he turned around and shared this? I or? mean, so, 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 you know, I think the 793D question is close enough, all the more so given that this is the same Chairman Nunes who had spent a lot of time on Monday excoriating leakers no, for right. breaking the law under a similar, under a, a sort of similarly capacious interpretation of 793D. Totally agreed. Now, just for the sake of argument, let's assume that maybe somebody does want to try to prosecute right. 
Uh, let's let's discuss briefly the speech and debate clause defense that he might, as a legislator, be able to invoke. So the speech or debate clause is Article One, I think Section Six, designed to basically ensure that members of Congress can't be prosecuted for things they say in the context of speeches or debates. Right? That basically it's a free speech protection for the floor of the House and the Senate. It has been extended into committee rooms. Um, Bobby, there's a 1979. Supreme Court case called Hutchinson versus Proxmire that I think is not exactly at the top of everyone's tongues, um, where the Supreme Court actually specifically held um, that the speech or debate clause does not protect the transmittal of information by individual members of Congress through press releases and or newsletters. Um, right, And so I think there's an interesting question about whether that would extend to a press conference. Um, yeah. Right um, now, there's a good argument, and our friend Josh Chaffetz at Cornell Law School has made this argument that Hutchinson versus Proxmire is a really, really stupid and wrongly decided case. <laughs> um, but so long as it's out there, right? Yeah, I mean, I yeah, think yeah. it does not. It, it does not bode well if you ever had a serious case like this um, that you have the Supreme Court decision out there basically saying press conferences are not speech or debate clause protected. So that that is certainly a problem. I, I, <laughs> what do you think would actually happen? Um, honestly, so so let me back up. I, this is going to dovetail a bit with what we we're going to get to next, right? I think there's a real difference if Nunes were speaking in his capacity as chairman of the House Intelligence Committee versus in his own capacity. And so I actually think he'd have an even stronger, in the hypothetical world where he's actually prosecuted, which he won't be. Right. I think he'd have a stronger speech or debate clause defense if he was actually just speaking on behalf of the entire committee, which was exercising its committee authority. Um, and, and let me back up a second. And, and yeah, so I didn't know this until you yeah. told me earlier. Tell the audience uh, this fascinating fact about Hipsy's authority. So this was news to me until I actually started reading about it this week. So the, both of the intelligence committees have baked into their, basically their charters, um, and now actually into the Senate and House rules the authority to disclose national security information when, and here's the key language, Bobby, the committee determines that disclosure is in the public interest. Now, you suggested, when we talked about this before, before we taped, guys, we actually do plan sometimes. We put at least four minutes into that planning. Four and a half? Yeah, you can tell. Yeah, seriously. Um, so you suggested that, you know, insofar as that provision is Congress potentially overriding a presidential decision to keep something classified, it might raise constitutional concerns. Ding, ding, ding. But, you know, in the other direction, we're not even there because the committee had no idea this was happening. Right, so it's, this is all purely academic because the committee very much was cut out of the whole deal. This is a solo operation by a member of Congress who had access. We don't really know whether his access to this information was even in his capacity as a committee member. It may have May have been some other source, but there's an interesting note here about sort of the the the, the previously unexercised powers of the intelligence committees as such. Yeah. yeah, actually, so for listeners, if somebody knows of an example where either Hipsy or the Senate Select Committee, you don't, Sissy, want, you don't I was going to say you got you got to explain you got to explain the acronym. Uh, if Hipsy or Sissy has ever actually exercised their authorities. Um, I suppose you could say, some people say, like, well, didn't the church and pike committees do this? Well, that was that was prior to the existence of Hipsy and Sissy. They were sort of uh, sort of institutionalized successors. And they had a special statutory mandate. Yeah, so uh, I don't know that this has uh, happened before. If it did happen, I do think it presents probably an unlitigatable, but nonetheless fairly titanic clash because the, the power of the executive branch over classification of information as, as such is, is pretty 
clearly established, in my opinion, it's very interesting to think about the power hmm. of, a, of a single committee of Congress to make a decision to override that. We may disagree because I, I actually think that I actually think that Congress has more power in the realm of national security classification than either it or anyone else has generally understood. Um, and that they're actually exemplar statutes, the Atomic Energy Act of 1954 being a completely obscure one. Oh, it's, um, it's an important one. Where Congress has actually claimed direct classification authority. Um, but, but this is, you know, yeah, is. but guys, the, the, the key point here is to get to the point of this kind of legal sophistication, you have to be so far past what Nunes did this week. And you have to have dotted so many more I's and crossed so many more T's. And so even though we love the legal nuances, we'll, we'll abandon that to get to what really matters, which is that now th what? this episode was a blow to the credibility of the, the HIPSI as an oversight mechanism at a time when that really matters. Right. And, and there's already been a number of blows. Uh, you, you just, and this is some, some struck by me. Yes, some struck by <laughs> Steve himself. This, this is not the sort of thing that's going to help that institution be able to exercise its function of both providing constraint for the activities of the intelligence community, but also providing legitimacy to it yeah. by ensuring that there is a body that has access to the inside information that in a trustworthy way is minding the store. And so I guess, right, so, so to me, Bobby, there are sort of two degrees of, impl of implications and ramifications here, right? The first is for the committee. And I think, you know, ranking member Schiff, um, who, you know, is not a, 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 a bomb thrower, right? No, who no, is, no, he's a very responsible fellow. Right, and, and, and fairly moderate. I mean, he was on TV on Thursday saying exactly what you just said, right, which is the real problem here is how much this demeans the credibility of the committee and the ability of the committee to do its job, both in this case specifically and more generally, if the chairman of the committee looks like a lapdog for the president. So I, I do think there's a problem there. And then there's also a, a sort of another layer to it, which is, the precedent that's being set. Yep. If, if it's okay for the chairman to have gone and done this, um, when uh, when Ron Wyden's in possession right. of information about some covert action program or collection activity that he's bothered by, is it okay for him to go out and give a press conference and gesture really closely to the details? These are two-edged swords. Right, and I think we both would have said beforehand, no. <laughs> right, well, and I would still say it, but it's unfortunate that now this, this uh, example has been put forward. So, and then the second set of questions, Bobby, is what happens to Nunes himself, right? I mean, there have been calls, mostly from Democratic members, sure. um, that he lose his chairmanship yeah, he's, over he's this. Not, I don't think he's going to, but, but it weakens his, his institutional authority. But I certainly don't imagine Paul Ryan has on his agenda anytime soon to, to try to upset this well, particular Well, he's, he's busy card. with health care. Um, <laughs> oh, is there something? I don't follow other fields. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I will say this. I mean, l listen, you, you know, guys, it's been one whole week since Bobby and I fought about the perception of the Intelligence Committee versus the Armed Services Committee, right? <laughs> a whole week. I mean, people like me are going to use this episode going forward to say, this is why we don't trust the Intelligence Committees. I think, I think you're kind of... Going throwing the bomb. baby out with the bathwater yeah. there. Um, that it, the oversight. But so how do we issue. know which? So how do we know which? How do we know the context in which we can and should trust the intelligence committee from this? Well, not to reopen the prior discussion about drone strike <laughs> oversight. However, we do have a lot of detail about the mechanical, the mechanisms of oversight, and whether there's even granular reporting in the first instance. Only after you feel like you've got a level playing field between the two committee structures in that respect can you then get to the question of, okay, well, how do you feel about? You know, Mac Thornberry, mm -hmm. who I think everybody respects. And, and this is the I, chairman of the House Armed Services Committee. And UT Law graduate, hook him, Mac. Um, <laughs> you know, there versus Chairman uh, Chairman Nunes in, in the situation he's gotten himself into here. But So personalities we, matter. 
Personalities and, and, and uh, that's right. And then how one conducts oneself as chair matters. So, so that's a good segue then, right? Because if personalities matter, credibility matters. Bobby, yesterday you were involved in this really fantastic event here at the University of Texas run through, I guess it was the Strauss Center and the Clement Center. Can you say a bit about that and its keynote, FBI Director Comey? Yeah, so we had an incredible day yesterday. This is a program put together by Professor Steve Slick, who runs the Intelligence Studies Project here at UT. The better Steve. The, the, the other, yeah, we keep several Steves on hand. You need to have a few. Uh, <laughs> this Steve, Steve Slick, uh, runs this program, which is focused on understanding and improving education and, and so forth, relating to uh, the intelligence community. And it's a, a jointly operated program from the Strauss Center and the Clement Center. And our keynote speaker at this event yesterday was Jim Comey. And it's very funny, Steve, because uh, Jim had canceled his South by Southwest appearance, which was supposed to bring him to Austin previously. There have been a few other cancellations, and no one thought he was going to show up. But I thought all along, after Monday, there's no place Jim Comey would rather be, I would think, than eating tacos. Than eating tacos and being in Austin. And indeed, he came and was. For anyone who's seen him speak, he's, he's an incredibly dynamic speaker, very funny. I mean, he had the crowd laughing at many points, but also, and most importantly, very substantive. Now, he, it is true, as, as several outlets covered, when a, uh, the first student called upon asked him about you know, Hillary and the emails and, and the connections to some of the current events, he demurred, totally to be expected. But though he didn't say anything about some of the current controversies, he talked a lot about substantive issues and had a few things to say that I thought were worth passing along. Um, I was trying to listen for things I hadn't heard from him or from other government officials before. The, the one that really jumped out at me, he threw out some data and under the heading of the going dark debate. This is the debate about whether or not the government, through legislation or otherwise, should be doing something to try to get private industry to not create devices that they can't decrypt the information on those devices. Mm -hmm. um, so going dark is the idea that gradually uh, the, the universe of information that in the past would have been available pursuant to a lawful uh, warrant, lawfully issued warrant, that, that the percentage of instances where you could, pr as a practical matter, execute the warrant shrinking as communications move into these encrypted spaces. Um, one of the things that's dogged the FBI's effort to uh, advance that equity has been the lack of powerful examples of how widespread the problem already is. It's been mostly a perspective, this is going to become a bigger deal. And like high profile individual cases. Yeah, yeah, and so I'm not saying there haven't been examples, no, but, no, but, but, but so far it's been kind of striking how, how small the percentages offered have been. But he threw out a big percentage yesterday, and he may, he may have said this publicly elsewhere, but I hadn't heard it. He, he said that over a certain recent period, FBI had received, presumably from local law enforcement seeking help, 2,800 devices, and in 43% of those cases, using all the means available to them, including classified means, they were unable to get into the devices. That was a bigger percentage by a lot than I had previously seen. I, I live tweeted that, and then it, it, several people immediately jumped on and said, that can't be right, that's a, that's a very different number. Right. Um, who knows, there may be some nuance into that wasn't elaborated in those numbers, but that was striking. And there's also, I mean, Bobby Schultz said, there's also the possibility that, I mean, the FBI is not the only government agency um, that might be looking at these devices. Obviously, if it's local law enforcement, it makes more sense that that's going through FBI. Right. If it was the FBI, they might, they might have some friends helping them out with the... With the, with the decryption. One of his points he makes, and this is not a new point, this yeah. is often made, is that at the end of the day, the, the 
the people that have the biggest problem, or at least will experience it first and foremost, is local law enforcement who cannot, in every instance, persuade NSA to help them, right. or even even necessarily always get FBI help. But this begs a question, which maybe we should save for another time. I mean, you and I wrote about this in the context of the San Bernardino shooter's iPhone for lawfare, right, last year. Um, one wonders if, if there's actually a useful sorting function um, where if the FBI doesn't have the capacity to do this in every case, you really are only doing it in the cases where there's some real felt need and urgency, not just a random drug case where you can, but a case like a terrorism case like San Bernardino where you actually have genuine concerns that failure to do so is going to prevent you from stopping a future terrorist attack. It, that, that appeals to me at one level, but then there's a part of me that resists on the theory that what, you, what you'll end up with there is situations that in the abstract seem super important because they're maybe a terrorism or national or counterintelligence investigation, yet the particular instance of evidence gathering opportunity is kind of unimportant or at least relatively un unimportant compared to all the other investigative tools available versus the seemingly minor but to the victim and the victim's family the local crime, the murder, the rape, whatever it is, um, hugely important. And maybe, and maybe this is a critical element of the case because there aren't a lot of other resources available to the local law enforcement. So it's, it's hard to know how to stack those. Well, I mean, I, I imagine we'll become, I mean, this is, you know, we talked about Vault 7 last week, right? This is here this week. I imagine we'll come back to it. But it's a good sort of plug, Bobby, for just how much cool stuff is happening here and often that's not just South by Southwest. Yes, this is your sponsored content hour. <laughs> uh, let me just mention two other things Comey uh, said, and then we want to move on to a new topic. Uh, Jim also mentioned, and I hadn't heard him say this before, and I thought this was actually a, a very positive sign. Uh, one of my biggest concerns about the idea of taking action to address the going dark problem is the, the idea that it's futile, that what you're really just going to do is, is harm U.S. industry, the, the private sector, uh, Austin, Silicon Valley, Notice that the order I did that. Indeed. Um, that you're going to harm them, and then you're not going to get a lot of benefit because uh, competitors abroad will, will step into the market. Now, first of all, it's, it's far from clear that actually would be the case, but it, it certainly might be, and that's gravely, I think that's been a real cause for concern. Can we seem to acknowledge that when he was asked about it by, by uh, Will Inboden during the Q&A, and he said something about how it, it looks like it, it might really be important if there ever is a U.S. intervention in this area for it to be done in coordination with other countries mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, that, that is definitely something that might actually happen. Um, lastly, uh, one student asked him about sort of name and shame responses to uh, uh, cyber intrusions, and, and in particular, what is the efficacy of, say, indicting some PLA hackers, some Chinese hackers, when you're not realistically going to get your hands on them? And he made the assertion that since the indictment of the PLA hackers, uh, they have seen a discernible uptick in cooperation. And he put it pretty strongly. Now, he said, an uptick in cooperation on the Chinese side when the FBI comes to them and says, we have investigative leads right. and we need your help, they've been more cooperative. Um, it's easy maybe to dismiss that, but it's not nothing. No. And so that was yeah. a sort of positive sign. Quite. Yeah. So uh, what else happened away from those <sighs> topics? So, you know, it's funny. We spent, as Bobby said, we spent about four minutes planning the content for today. I mean, when you have Devin Nunes, it sort of makes it easy. Um, but, you know, Tuesday, Bobby, there was a story that caught both of our attention but actually didn't seem to get much broader media coverage. You know, yeah. there wasn't a lot going on this week, you know, Gorsuch <laughs> confirmation here on healthcare reform. Maybe that's the problem. I, I saw this one and I got a little breathless. I thought, oh, this is going to be huge. Uh, sort of tweeting and emailing yeah. and posting on it. Uh, Steve, what happened? So um, on Tuesday, the United States filed a civil suit 
um, to denaturalize Ayman Ferris, um, who's a Pakistani-American who was convicted in 2003 for providing material support to terrorism. Bobby is sort of part of a broader plot to maybe blow up the Brooklyn Bridge. Yeah, yeah. Fer- Ferris is now kind of member, or and had been uh, involved in the 80s and 90s in, in the sort of the circles that culminated eventually in him being in the United States, uh, in communication with Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, talking about various plans, and eventually indicted uh, for for the, the part that the public heard the most about was you know, various plotting, including this pretty harebrained scheme where he was going to try to, use, I think, like use blowtorches right. to cut the cables on the Brooklyn Bridge. Because that would work. Yeah, that, that, that was not going to work. But the important point was he was he was in the country as a sleeper agent. Now, he had come into the country and eventually become naturalized. And in that process, at various stages, of course, he'd had to make lots of statements on immigration forms, including statements about, you know, have you ever been, have you ever been charged, have you ever committed a crime for which you've not been charged or convicted? Have you, you know, have you ever been associated with groups? Well, there's also an allegation in the Justice Department's complaint that he actually even entered the country on a false Pakistani passport. Right, and he he, he used a false, and it seems pretty obvious he he did do so. He entered the country originally on a false passport to get in. So we have to distinguish here. I mean, so, so Bobby, part of why I did not sort of think this was quite as big a story as it sounds like you did is because I think there's a fairly important but subtle difference in the law between what the government is seeking to do to Ferris, which is denaturalization, um, and what I think of as a much more controversial topic, which is expatriation. Yes, I, and you persuaded me that, that it, that's definitely a bigger deal. Let's be, will you s- state really clearly what these categorical distinctions are? Yeah, so they're big words, but it's actually a pretty small idea, right? Denaturalization is the process of revoking the citizenship of someone who obtained it after birth. So that's to say someone who was naturalized as opposed to born a U.S. citizen. Um, And not surprisingly, denaturalization can be based upon, among other things, circumstances where the underlying naturalization was fraudulently obtained. Exactly. And Um, and in fact, this authority has been used a lot over time. Now, in the post-World War II period, it's mainly been used over the decades in cases of people who lied about their past ties to basically the Nazi party or to Axis powers. And you had, you had for a time, a several, what, several hundred people over the decades who eventual investigations revealed, oh, this guy was, was a, you know, a prison guard in a right. concentration That's camp, right. that sort of thing. Revoke, you know, he lied about it when he got into the United States and became a citizen. Revoke his citizenship deport him. And that's happened a bunch. Right. And so I guess that's part of why, I mean, it's true, Bobby, as you pointed out to me, that there really aren't that many examples of cases of post 9-11 terrorism suspects. Yeah. And we actually wanted to call for listeners. If you know of an example where after 9-11, someone convicted of a terrorism offense was denaturalized involuntarily, I I couldn't think of an example. And so I thought this was the first such example. Yeah. I guess it just, it just doesn't get my dander up because I think when the government has compelling evidence that the naturalization was obtained... Yeah. You know, fraudulently. Yeah. The statute applies. The statute applies, and I don't see a real constitutional yeah. objection. And we've and we've done it with without people getting exercised in all these prior Nazi That's cases. Right. I, I think the much bigger deal, and it's an interesting question whether folks will actually honor this distinction, is expatriation, right? right. So expatriation, there are separate statutes. Denaturalization is covered by 8 U.S.C. section 1451. Expatriation is section 1481. And expatriation, Bobby, actually raises much more serious both constitutional and international law concerns. Because if you're born a U.S. citizen, that means that you are not also or previously a citizen of another country. Yeah, I guess if it's a dual citizen, then the practical question goes away. But if you, if you don't actually have citizenship somewhere right. else... then expatriation produces statelessness. Well, yeah, where do you send them? Right. So um, expatriation has been controversial. Now, one of the things I think is really worth keeping folks' eyes on 
um, is there has been this proposal floating around really since I think 2009, um, something called the Terrorist Expatriation Act, which Senator Ted Cruz keeps introducing in every Congress. I don't know if he's done it yet this time around, but I imagine it's only a matter of time. Um, and the Terrorist Expatriation Act would add to the seven existing grounds for expatriation in 8 U.S.C. 1481a, um, the expatriation of any individual who the Secretary of State identifies as having committed material support to terrorism. So clearly, big constitutional challenge would... would with, uh, Several, right? Yes. So, so it's, it's worth stressing. The Supreme Court actually has said a fair amount about expatriation. And what it has said is involuntary expatriation is unconstitutional. It violates the due right. process so, clause. So just to contrast that... Uh, involuntary involuntary denaturalization, fine. Involuntary expatriation, bad, bad. Um, and the reason for that is because right, expatriation is not supposed to be punishment. It's supposed to be something that happens when you have voluntarily chosen to align yourself with some other country. The existing statute has one contrary example that I guess hasn't been put to the test. Yeah, so the only contrary example in the statute, the only ground that exists today for which someone could be expatriated without some voluntary renunciation yeah. of citizenship Plea bargain. Um, is a treason conviction. Um, and, you know, there are two things worth saying there, right? One, maybe you could argue that the underlying elements of treason do require a degree of voluntariness sufficient to show yeah. fealty to a foreign power. I think that's the, that's the theory. Right. Um, two, right, I mean, it doesn't matter. If you're getting convicted of treason, by the time you're out of prison, you're dead. Um, <laughs> right? There, there's no, there's the, no The point. reason you're out of prison is because you had a capital. Well, yes. So what if you plead guilty and yeah. as part of the plea agreement, you, you accept this term of years, but but part of the plea agreement is going to be you voluntarily waive your citizenship. But I wonder about that. I mean, right, so Hamdi. So go back to Yasser Hamdi. Yasser Hamdi was the U.S. citizen who was picked mm -hmm. up in Afghanistan, who was sent to Guantanamo, then to Virginia. Right. And he cut a deal. He cut a deal where one of the terms was in, in agreeing to be released from military custody, he volunteered to relinquish his citizenship. Query whether that's really voluntary. Right, right, right. Um, it's never been litigated. I actually, I'm not so sure about it. So this is, I don't know the answer to this question, but I'm imagining this has come up in, in more run-of-the-mill plea bargaining context where you have people with dual citizenship and, and the government has... Hmm. So, listeners, if you know of an example, I can imagine... <laughs> We're giving you guys a lot of work this week. Yeah, exactly. I can imagine a defendant who's got dual citizenship, maybe, uh, you know, some other country, yeah. and they're going to be deported there as part of the plea agreement. And then I wonder if they ever try to extract yeah. a waiver or a voluntary relinquishment of U.S. citizenship. I don't know, but it's worth stressing that the version of the Terrorist Expatriation Act that keeps getting bounced around is so not nowhere near close to that, right? Sure. And would allow expatriation... For such a modest based on an administrative designation by the Secretary of State that has nothing to do with voluntary fealty to a foreign yeah, that, power. That's that's asking for litigation. Woohoo! Yeah, or non-passage. Exactly. Um, but but all this to say, the Iman Farah story, you know, interesting headline to me, Bobby. It's 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 the next case that where where the government. Right. It's, it's what does this portend as sort of a starter? Um, I, I'll say this too. So Ferris has had a twenty-year sentence, and I think he was convicted in 03. I don't know how much time served was built into that, but let's assume none, just for the sake of argument. That means that it's you know it's 2017. That guy was about six years from being out. Six years being out, and, and there are a number of people from the early wave yeah. of post 9/11 material support prosecutions who had like somewhere between 10 and 20 year sentences. Exactly, and you know there are a number of people who are going to come out of jail, and it's going to it's going to present some really sensitive issues. You know that guy's at the halfway house down the street from you. Hmm. Um, and it might finally push Congress to actually take seriously whether it needs to revise either 1451 or 1481. Yeah, I, so I, I guess what I, I think what we're saying to y'all is listen closely. Uh, 
Um, you want to read that? Oh, sorry, yeah. So while we're sitting here recording the podcast, we just got a breaking news alert from the Washington Post that Paul Manafort's volunteered to testify before the House committee that's probing Russia ties. Okay, question, Steve. Can the committee offer any immunity of any kind? <sighs> Didn't this come up in the uh, uh, Iran-Contra hearings where there were congressional yeah. grants of certain kinds of immunity yeah. that then kind of screwed with yes. the criminal investigation opportunities. Yep. So here we go. <laughs> well, okay. So yeah. So to be clear, we're just reading some breaking news <laughs> alert. We don't know what's actually going on here. But, but I guess we know what we're talking about. The first week. question I want to look into is, was there any immunity deal here? Oh, Bobby. I, you know, I, I, at some point when we were talking about launching this podcast, I was worried that we'd have like four weeks worth of stuff to say. <laughs> what, what were we talking about a second ago before that breaking uh, news? Expatriation did oh, yeah, and, and the whole thing, the, the coming wave of people being released yeah. from their sentences. Oh, it's going to provoke a whole lot of different legal questions. Yeah, yeah. So you heard it here first. That's going to be a big issue soon. So now, when, when I gave my job talk at the University of Miami in the fall, it was October 2004, um, one of my uh, soon-to-be colleagues, because I started teaching at Miami, um, asked me after hearing my paper, which is all about like emergency power, what are you going to write about when John Kerry wins? <laughs> Well, I think you're going to be in business for a while, Steve. Yeah, that's, that's, that's not so good. Speaking you know, of being in business for a while. Uh, you know who's doing a lot of business these days? Who? Ed Sheeran. Ed Sheeran? Ed Sheeran. That's a random segue for you. No, not at all, because because eventually I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull this around to Game of Thrones. Did you know, Steve, there's a rumor going around that Ed Sheeran's going to be in the next season of Game of Thrones. Ugh, Does that mean why? Game of Thrones, the HBO series, has jumped the shark? Does that mean, that, that, you're, you're, that's a lot of metaphors in one sentence. Yeah, do you think that the younger listeners know what Jump the Shark comes from? Um, do you think we have younger listeners? No, fair point. <laughs> do, do you think we have listeners? So I'm, I'm reminded of the scene in Major League where, where Harry Doyle's reviewing the box score, and he says, one hit, that's all we got, one goddamn hit. Um, and Monty, who is, I think, the greatest character in any sports movie of all time ever, drops wow. in. Wow. You can't say goddamn on the air. And Harry <laughs> says, eh, nobody's listening. <laughs> oh, man. We need Bob Euchre to join our, uh, our podcast. That, he should be our first guest. Yes. <laughs> um, so, so Ed Sheeran, Game of Thrones. All right, I'm going to do one. Well, can I just say, I actually oh, think sorry. it's kind of brilliant yes. because, I mean, Ed Sheeran kind of looks like an extra from Game of Thrones. You can just kind of <laughs> throw some, uh, some grubby clothes on the guy. Or maybe he's got some grubby clothes on and he just would fit right in. I'm still trying to figure out how you think Hard Home was a better episode than The Winds of Winter. I mean, I'm still stuck on that from two weeks ago. Zombie combat apotheosis. It was wonderful. Yeah, and it was like, oh, okay. Um, well, in my in my random pop culture reference for the day, so Veep is coming back, right? Julia Louis-Dreyfus has been all over the news because of Northwestern basketball's, you know, run to the NCAA tournament <laughs> and her son playing for the team. Veep comes back April 16th. Bobby, you don't watch Veep. Nope. Um, my wife, Karen, is obsessed with Veep. Yeah? I can't stand it. Oh, you can't stand it? I, I thought, can't stand no, it. No, I don't watch it, but I've always heard it's great, and I like Julia Louise Dreyfus. It's painful. Like, I can't watch these horrible, terrible, unredeemable people stumble around screwing up everything. Wait, are you talking about regular news, or are you talking about Veep? Well, this is the problem. I mean, this is... So the question is, is Veep more watchable or less watchable in the Trump administration? Well, I think we talked previously about how uh, House of Cards in particular mm. has been it kind of... It's, it's kind of funny. As, as our politics have, politics have gotten a little nastier, the, the gap uh, has closed. And so I don't know what that means for Veep, because I don't really follow it that much. Uh, <sighs> I guess yeah. we'll find out. And then, and then July, what, July 16th for Game of Thrones? 
Yeah, I, it, but only seven episodes. I, you know, the whole breakdown of the traditional model of delivering content for, for uh, TV has been mostly great. But this whole thing where uh, you get these mini seasons and then you have to wait yet another term, it, it makes me worried that they really are going to try to wait for George Martin to finish writing these books, in which case I worry that we'll never see the yeah, end but, of Yeah, but when you think about how much time and money and production value goes into these individual episodes, which is to say infinitely more than the time, money, and production values that we put into this podcast... Right. <laughs> um, it does. You know. I. I mean. You say only seven. I say. Oh, good. Seven movies. That, yeah, I mean, well, these that's are true. movies. That's true. That's true. I just want more. Yeah. Well, that, uh, as any TV show should leave you wanting. I'll tell you what people don't want is more of this episode. It's at the fifty-one minute mark. Should we just kill it? Uh, I guess we'll have to come back to you guys next week, where you know I'm sure nothing's going to happen between now and then. We'll just talk about the tournament, and you know we'll probably have to do our baseball preview because opening weekend is is coming up. Yeah, we got to get our fancy league going. Listeners who were interested in the fancy league idea, I, I don't think we're going to end up doing that. But uh, <laughs> but nonetheless, we'll be interested in hearing how your teams develop. And so good luck with that. Maybe your fancy team could be Nunes is Nunes. Oh my God, there's so many pun opportunities here. Well, on that note, Bobby, everyone stay safe out there. Have a good week. Adios.